I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Last week I spoke about the unique work of God. Unique in the sense that only God can do it. There are things that are necessary to be done in our lives that cannot be done unless God does it. Now we basically looked at 1 Peter chapter 5 and mentioned four things there that the Bible says that God will do. And these four things were that he would perfect you, he would establish you, that he would strengthen you, and that he would settle you. And we looked at what those words mean and how needful they are and should be in our lives. That as Christians, we should be all of these things. Well, these are things that you cannot do by effort or by some program in a church. They're not things that can be done by the most skilled teacher or preacher. It has to be something that God does, and therefore there has to be a connection or a relationship between a man and God, not just an academic relationship where you say you do, but I mean a real life-changing relationship with the Lord. And only God can do this because if he doesn't do it, nothing will ever happen the way it's supposed to happen. Now, I want to continue today on the subject of uniqueness because it glorifies God to talk about things that only God can do. And the Bible is filled with different traits and characteristics that describe God in his uniqueness. This morning, I want to talk about the unique ability of God. That is what God is able to do. I think a word that we're all familiar with is omnipotence. Omni, which means all, and potent, which means power. Psalm 62, 11 says that all power is of God. Power comes from God. He is the all-powerful one. He is able to do as he pleases all of his will, with or without means, because he's God. We read, for example, in Genesis 18, right at the beginning of the Bible, in verse 14, God asked the question, and we have to answer this. God says, is anything too hard for him? Is anything too hard for God? Because God often shows us things in the Bible he wants us to do or the kind of people he wants us to be, whether it's holy or, or perfect from our standpoint, we look at things from the human experience. We draw back from those lofty ideas and say, well, that can't be. But God, who asked the question and who gave the word that he wants us to be holy, is anything too hard for him? Well, you can't make yourself holy, but God can. But we limit God. Just like in the 78th Psalm, the Bible said they limited God and they turned back. And I believe this. I believe that people who turn back from God or turn away from these lofty truths do so because they limit God. They somehow reach a conclusion that after all these years nothing has happened, I don't know that he really can do this. Or maybe that he's really willing to do this. But we tend to limit God our problem is so big, our situation is so encompassing that I don't know how we can ever get out of this. It doesn't occur to people who are about to turn back that God has already asked the question, is anything too hard for God? Is there a lost person that God cannot save? Is there a difficulty in a home that cannot be fixed by God? Is there an amount of money that is needed that God cannot send or cause to come somebody's way? Is there a disease that God cannot heal? Is there anything known to man that is too hard for God? Well, no. In Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 17, he said this, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Nothing is too difficult for thee. We sing that song. We glorify God by singing that because we are singing back to him what he has said to us. That's why the singing of Scripture is a good thing. We are repeating. We are quoting. 
And God himself said in Isaiah 46, he said, put me in remembrance. Tell me what I've said. Sing it. Even in vacation Bible school, remember that? Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life because they're words that describe God. And I can assure you this morning that among the many things God is doing, one of the things he is doing is to make his people know who he is. Now, to some people, a study of theological terms and ideas is boring. To describe the might and the power and the love or the majesty or the glory or the wisdom of God to a lot of people is boring. I don't think very many people today go to church to be taught. I think they go to listen to some nice sermon that makes them feel better about themselves or something, but... They really don't want somebody to teach them where they have to do a lot of thinking and make application. But themes about God, studying who God is. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That should not be boring. I don't care if the preacher is boring or not or the teacher is boring. It is the Spirit of God who enlightens us, and if the Word is going out, there's an opportunity for you to learn. It's the work of God to exalt the Lord, to glorify God, to learn who he is and all of his immensity and his eminence. It's just he's everything. We don't always know that because we limit him so much in our lives. That's why we grumble. That's why we complain. That's why we fuss and fight at home. We have literally limited God Maybe because we don't remember that we have been taught that he is great and good and mighty and powerful, or else we didn't listen and we don't remember it. But all of our problems and weaknesses can be traced back to a lack of remembrance of who God is because he presents himself to us as the almighty God. And almighty means all might is of God and for God. Jeremiah also said in the same chapter 32, he said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? In Luke 137, God said, With God, nothing is impossible. In Luke 18, Jesus responded to a man, and, and he said, With men, this is impossible. He said, But with God, all things are possible. We don't think like that. Again, we're so used to being shoved down by daily chores and problems, and we look at so many things we can't fix that we forget that God wants to come into the equation, and he wants us to cast all of our care and concern about things over on him because he is able. He's bigger than life. He's bigger than our problems. He is bigger than your problems. He is bigger than a government. He is bigger than the fear of what the devil tells you is coming next. He's bigger than that. He's God. And yet, if we don't know this as a reality, if these words I'm speaking are not words that, that are becoming embedded in our hearts and thinking, then we too will be guilty of limiting God somewhere down the line We'll cave into the pressure, to the drudgery, to the depression, to the oppression, to the, oh, no, not again. We'll give in to that, leave God out of our life, and turn back. And yet he has stood there from the day you came to him, and he said, I would gather you in. I will take care of you. I will keep you. I will protect you. There is nothing too hard for me, not even you. Nothing is too difficult for God. He's our source. He's the one we're to rely on and to trust in. He's the one we're to count on. Not because we deserve anything or we've learned so much that now we qualify. The very fact that he has made us his child and has brought us to himself. He becomes our father. And he speaks to us as his children. Look at Hebrews 7 there. Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Three S's I want to begin with this morning. Saved, safe, and secure. Sound like a good Baptist sermon. Amen. 
Well, I believe this. Saved, safe, and secure. Verse 25, wherefore he is able. Now, we're talking about the ability of God. Here's our first verse. Wherefore he is able. What's he able to do? He is able to save them to the uttermost or to the very end or finality. He is able to save, not only start the saving process, but finish it to the uttermost, those that come to him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Did you know this, that when God saved you, you are continually on his mind? There is an utterance made for you daily. You're his. I mean, do you see that? That God who brought you out of the darkness, who brought you out of the miry clay, as the psalmist said, and set your feet up on the rock, that the Almighty God has taken you in as one of the projects of your life, that he will save you to the uttermost? In Young's literal translation, he says, whence he is able to save to the very end. Now, I like that because I want to be saved to the very end. I don't want to just think I'm saved. I don't want to assume that I'm saved because I go to church where they talk about being saved. I want to be saved. I want to know that when the end comes, whenever it does, I will go to heaven. And that's more than just some idea. There's a truth here. John chapter 10 and verse 29, to go along with this, remember Jesus talking about his father and his sheep. He said, my father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Now, only God can do this. There is a real devil seeking lives, seeking souls, trying to rob and kill and steal and distract and ruin whoever he can. God, who himself laid hold of you, He did so because he said, the Father gave you to him. And when he holds you and you're in his hands, he said, no man can pluck you out of his hand. Listen to how the Williams translation translates that. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them, he says, out of my Father's hand. It says it's basically the same thing, but he said no man is able to take you away from God. Not only things of that sort, but listen to this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Not only does he hold you, but he holds you because he loves you. We may not know that. We may think that he loves us because he has to. And that because we go to church, he has to save us. And because we attend meetings and give money or whatever we do, we think that he's supposed to do all of this. But you can do all of that and be lost, and you know it. But God, who brings us to himself, holds us to himself, and he says, no man can take you out of my hand, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not things in this world, not things present, not things in darkness, not things in light, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. No life experience, no circumstance can separate you from the love that God has for you. It is God himself who said that concerning you, he will give his angels charge that they might keep you in all your ways. Who else can do that? Do you think State Farm can do that? You think any man-made institution that exists or ever existed can do that? Nobody can do that. There's no government. There's nothing in the world that can protect you except God who can keep you, who can hold you. And as Isaiah said, he has graven you on the palms of his hands. That's how much he loves you. And what he has grabbed and gripped and saved, 
no man can take away. Now, you may assume you're saved and live like you always have because you're really not. Because people don't know, and I, I don't want to get into this because you know how I take journeys while I'm preaching and it'll last forever. But being born again means exactly that. Not as a little baby again, but your nature, your life, everything turns around and changes from the way it was towards him who makes all things new. And if there's not newness of life present, if there's no evidence of this, you've never been born again. Didn't say you were a bad person. You must be a nice person. You're a kind person. You're friendly, likable, and all of that. But that doesn't get you to heaven. Only God can save a man. Save a man, that is, give him the new birth. The new birth is from above by the Spirit of God. And he puts Christ in you as a living spirit. And to have Christ is to be saved. And if you are of him and he is in your heart, then he is pointing you in a new direction. And there is nothing he points you to that God cannot do. He never leads you any place he can't keep you. And he did not save you so that later on you could be lost again. He saves you, he secures you, and he keeps you. Because he's God. Nobody can do this but God. We're helpless souls wandering in a dark world without God. But with God, we can walk in the light and fear nothing. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Now, let's look at just a few verses. There's far too many to cover them all. But I've selected the choice ones, the juicy ones, to encourage you to always remember who God is. He is the almighty God. He is the omnipotent God, possessing of all power. And everything in your life is no problem for him. There are no conditions or circumstances known to man that God is not much greater than. That God could solve all the world's problems with one little mash of his thumb. Nothing is too difficult for God. Not your mind, not your wallet, your checkbook, not your marriage, not your children, not the government, not the country, nothing. Nothing is too difficult for God. And remember this, God singled you out of all the mass of humanity. It was God who singled you out to be his child. You did not choose him. He chose you. If you've got an urge in your heart to know God, be thankful because God put it there. Nobody else could. No man can come to the Son except the Father which sent the Son draw them. And if he's drawn you out of that darkness and he's given you a new reason to live and put a little bounce in your step and something in your heart, add this to it, that the God of all glory who lives and resides inside of you is able to take care of you and provide for you to secure you and keep you and make life what it's supposed to be because he can. Nobody else and nothing else can do that. Nobody else can do that. Now, turn to Ephesians. Number one this morning, Ephesians chapter 3. You realize that God's ability and might is a basis for your faith? That the Bible speaks more of God's omnipotence than any other attribute that he has. His power. His might. Things can seem so hard, but if you look unto Jesus, nothing is too hard. He doesn't prevent us from going through hard places. He just assures us that he is greater than a hard place. And that if you trust him, he'll bring you through. Ephesians chapter 3. Maybe we should have brought our tennis shoes this morning. Because you see, some of these things you read, and I'm just jesting with you, but some of these things that you read are inspiring. They're inspiring not because you can read, but because man didn't give you this. The Apostle Paul wasn't some little fellow one day that decided he ought to write this. Spirit of God moved upon men, and they wrote as he moved. I hear people all the time, well, Paul had a problem with women. That's why he said... Paul didn't write it. 
Paul didn't write, well, Paul, he had a problem over it. Paul didn't write it. Or he was his hand, but it was from God. All Scripture is of God, G-O-D. Because man cannot write this. 1,500 years, kings, farmers, prophets, ordinary men, fishermen. Look at all the different kinds of people that wrote this Bible. From several hundreds of years apart, they've been separated by 1,500 years. They didn't know each other. And yet the things that were prophesied in the beginning are today, now, as I speak, are coming to pass accurately as they were spoken. Because God, God is bigger than all of life, and he could make things said then be exactly what's coming to pass now. And what this one said, this one said 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago. They said the same things, and it's all coming together. Because God is the one who preserves his word. It's inspired of God and it's preserved of God. You can burn it up, cut it up, throw it away, incinerate it, and it'll still come to pass. It will. So, again, back to the tennis shoes thing. Hold on here for just a minute because in verse 20 he says this, Now unto him that is able. All right, now what's he able to do here? He is able to do somewhat more than you think he can. What does it say? He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Now let's break that down and savor it, taste it. He is able. The word able is almost the same word as dunamis or power or might, dynamite. It's spelled a little differently because it's D-U-N-A-M-A-I, dunami, and the other one is dunamis. But they're the same word. They're one number apart in the concordance. So they're about the same thing. And the word simply means ability. The ability to do. Able to do. God has never said anything he cannot do. In Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. He's never said one thing and not been able to do it. Otherwise, he would have lied to us. If he has said it, he will do it. If he spoke it, he will make it good because he's God. Nothing is too difficult, nothing is too hard, and nothing is impossible with God. If he said it, he can do it. He said this, as I said, 1,500 years. He said things at one time, and he said things way many hundreds of years later, and he said the same thing to two different people. And these things are supposed to inspire us and cause our faith to come alive. Well, if God can do that, why am I worrying? Why do I worry about money or anything that's possible to worry. Why do I worry about anything if he said he's bigger than it is and that he would rescue me and he would help me and ask and you shall receive? Then why do I worry? Why am I afraid? Is he bigger than the booger man? Is he? Is he bigger than the arrow that flies by day or the creatures that stalk at night? Is he bigger? Then why? He asked us the question, oh, you have little faith. Why are you so tore up all the time? Why are you fretting and fighting and fussing and arguing about that? Isn't God bigger than all this? Is he bigger now? Well, he's, I know he said he was. Well, then if he said he was, he is. Otherwise, he lied. He can't lie. He wouldn't be God if he lied. If he said, go and sin no more, if that's not possible, then he lied. Somebody's misled. We're deceived. If he said, go and sin no more. It means that he's big enough that you can actually live that way. Oh, I don't know about that. No, it's because you don't know him. If God be uh, for me, now, who in the world out there can be against me? If God said no, who can say yes? 
He is able, and he can do all things. This word able means that he is able. What was it Abraham said about God, about when he was going to be a, a father at age 100 years old? He that promised was able? Therefore, he became a father because God is able. He is able to do that. And so he was secured. You remember if Daniel was thrown in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6? And Darius didn't want to throw him in there. But the Senate, the Constitution of that day, whatever they had up there, said he had to do it. So he threw him in the lion's den. And oh, he didn't like it. You remember what he said the next day? He said, Daniel, has your God been able to save you? Daniel says, I'm down here. I'm down here. These lions haven't hurt me tonight. Last night, an angel came and took care of me. Is he able to do that? Of course he is. He even sends angels to this earth to minister to you. They become present in our services. Of course, we limit them, but they're here. Because he is God, he can do that. This is his creation. He is a sovereign ruler of all creation. He made you. And he's in control of everything about life so that he can get you wherever you need to go. No matter what choices you're trying to make, you will make the right choice because God is able to see that. You're going to make it. doesn't mean you give up and quit because you have to make your calling and election sure. You can't sit on the porch and drink tea. So I'm going to heaven. Hallelujah. I don't have to do a thing. Just go to heaven. I doubt it. I doubt it. But another thing he said here in verse 20 is exceeding abundantly. Let me just use some carnal things here. You're thinking in terms of 100, but he's able to do thousands. You're thinking in terms of thousands, he's talking in terms of millions. All right, I'm thinking in terms of millions. Well, he's thinking in terms of billions. All right, I'm going to go into billions. No, he's already in the trillions. You're getting too many zeros out there. You will, we'll lose each other if we keep going. I'm just saying that God reveals himself to us as one who particularly wants to take care of us. There is nothing about us he can't fix, whether it's a, a wheelchair, an arm, a leg, a foot, an eye, all the internal stuff. There is absolutely nothing he can't fix. Nothing. He made man. And he can fix man. But we live like he can't. We're afraid he won't. We so desperately worry about so many things in this life, and we fret about so many things. And you're told in the papers and the media and the TV all the things you should worry about. Oh, look at this, and one out of four gets this, and we're worried about all of these things. And yet we got our Sunday book, and our Sunday book says that God is bigger than all of those things. Nothing shall by any means harm you. And yet, we limit God. We're so unsure about him doing all of this. As I've been saying the last couple weeks, we're so unsettled in our mind about the certainty of these things. Because we don't know him. You would never treat your mom or dad that way. But we treat God that way. We're just not sure that all these things were here in the right. But if we drew nigh and we knew him. Remember what Jeremiah said? Jeremiah 7. He said, if any man is going to boast, don't boast about how wise you are, about how mighty you are, about how strong you are. But Jeremiah said, but let him boast in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am God, that I am God who does this and that and thus and so. That's what we boast about. It's all about God. But he's able to do exceeding abundantly. 
One author said this, God is omnipotent, therefore he is able to do all things and able to do super abundantly above the greatest abundance. And I assure you that your debts, all the money you owe, if you really want to get out of debt and you come to him with all that you owe, you have not troubled your father. He owns the cattle on at least a thousand hills. God said, all the gold and all the silver is mine. It's all mine. Don't treat me like I don't have anything and I can't do anything. Don't stand in front of me and whine and cry about your worries and your tomorrows. I told you I will take care of you. Call upon the Lord. What greater verse is it than what things soever you desire? When you pray, believe that you shall receive them. Believe you have received them, and you shall have them. Maybe not just the little bits you're thinking, but God is able to do abundantly above that. He's able to do abundantly above all of that. More than we ask or think. And notice, according to the power that works in us. And look at 19th verse of chapter 1. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? Maybe that's the missing link between man and God. Man really doesn't believe. And that is the missing link. Man has heard about God and assumes on God that it must be because he said it. He hopes it works. He's not even sure it'll work, but he hopes it works, and he calls that faith. But that's not faith. Faith is being certain. Faith is what Abraham had. Fully persuaded that God is able. And you live like it. And you talk like it. And you act like it. And you say goodbye to your fears and goodbye to your threats and goodbye to all your uncertainties and goodbye to all the troubled looks and expressions and all of that stupid stuff on Facebook that people talk about. Now, I got it out, but at least a little bit. I'll get some more of that one. People talk too much. They talk too much about your personal life, about your family life. You talk too much, and the word spreads. You get misquoted. I hear about it. I think, why would anybody here mess with that ignorant stuff? Now, the preacher's gone to meddle. We were preaching a while ago. I do. I hear names mentioned, and people start asking questions, and they start assuming things about names. What do you say? Who about that kind of stuff? And they get talking about it. Next thing you know, you wander in like a busybody into somebody else's business because you want to know things you don't need to know. Now, let's go back to where we were. The power that he's given to us whereby all of these things happen, listen, is his power that is released through faith. Listen to this. Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the good news of salvation for all of those who believe. Paul said, when you receive the word from me, I praise God that you did not receive it as my word, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually works in those who believe it. We'll never preach faith too much. All the things that God says when they connect with your heart and you say, yes, that works, then your faith releases it all. Then you become a living testimony to what God is. People do ask you of the reason of the hope that is within you. You are one of those that become approved to God because this word takes a new vitality. It's like bread. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the word of God, he's got to have it. This is his daily food when this happens. It's all the things that God does in us, to us, and for us. But this word worketh at the end of verse 20, Ephesians 3, 20. It's the word energeo. We just call it energize. And the word simply means to become active and energetic. Listen, that's God in you. God takes the word and energizes it. He's the one who begins to make it vigorous or active. It begins to produce an effect in your life. Because this is what God does when you believe. When you believe, he makes the work, the word, come alive. That is, it has meaning. You begin to look to it. You begin to trust in it. You begin to rebuke yourself for such worry and trivial 
shameness you had last week because I don't know what I'm going to do. And you said, I don't know what we're going to do. What do you mean you don't know what you're going to do? What have you been taught? What has your heavenly father promised to do? I don't know what to do. Shame on you. God has told you what he will do. I know it. I know it. You're meddling. Secondly, this morning, turn to 2 Corinthians 9. We'll fuss here too, but not as bad, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8, where it says, and God is able. Do you see that part? And God is able. Well, let's read what he's able to do, because this is here for a reason. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Grace. Grace is favor, isn't it? Grace is an expression of God, of his favor towards you. In other words, he does it by grace because you can't earn it. He gives you something. He says things to you. He blesses you. Or he chastises you. That's grace too because it produces a good effect. But God is able to make all of his favor, all of heaven's flow come into your life so that you always, does your Bible say always? Having all sufficiency in all things. Now, what's left out? Nothing. Now, the whole context of chapter 8 and chapter 9 is that awful subject of giving. That's all we ever talk about anyway. That's what people say. All they ever talk about is money, so that's all we ever talk about. But chapters 8 and chapter 9 has to do with a collection for poor saints of giving money that you have. And these weren't well-to-do people. But you don't have to be well-to-do to give. You don't have to have a lot of money to give. A widow had two mites. What's two mites worth? A penny? Jesus said she gave more than all of them did. God looks at the heart, not the wallet. Looks at the motivation and the reason, whether you do it cheerfully or whether you do it grudgingly. In church, here comes that bucket, put something in it. That's why we get the bucket in the back. It's between you and God. Nobody knows what you're giving here. If you put it in there and you didn't like it, then tell Naomi to get it out for you after church. (laughs) Well, I'm just telling you that money is not as big a deal as people think it is. Because it's deceptive. Riches are deceiving. Because they make you think that you're somebody when essentially you're not. And we're warned about that. But this whole chapter, chapter 8 and chapter 9, is talking about giving. And Paul has no problem here with pulling an offering, as we used to say, trying to get people to give. Look in chapter 8 for just one moment and verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became what? Poor. So that, so that, so that, he bore the curse. Poverty was the curse of the law. So that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Now, you can't single this out for a lifelong pursuit because there's more in there besides this. It has to be a cheerful heart. It has to be motivated by God's inspiration. To just give. Just give. Take what is me and make it you. And you owe me nothing. That's the way it works. You give to people that, in this case probably, who will never be able to pay you back, never get a chance. They can't even afford to travel where you are and say thank you. You just give it and God will bless it and will sort it out in eternity. It's the nature of of what Christ does to a person's heart. God so loved the world that he gave. You cannot reward God. God needs no reward. He is God. He is sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing or anybody. Everything he created needs him. And we give because it pleases him. Jesus, though he was rich, Rich like what? Well, he is able to open the doors of heaven in Malachi and pour out a blessing upon you. 
Can he open the windows of heaven? Didn't Jesus say good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over? That's super abundant. We don't think like that because we think of something, you know, you're a shyster. But the fact of the matter is that one of the reasons God blesses us is so we can bless others. He gives bread to the eater and seed to the sower. He blesses us as we go out, and when we come in, we are not to get all enamored with how much of this life and this world that we can get, though he richly gives abundantly. But our focus has to be on him, not money. Too many people's lives are dictated by profit and money. A lot of businessmen have a bad night and can't sleep if it didn't make money. Got to make money. Got to make money. Got to be a profit. I, I had to do good. Oh, boy, I lost money. Oh, I can't sleep tonight. Turn to Amaziah chapter 25, 2 Chronicles. Well, I said that because you expected me to do that at least once. Amaziah chapter 25, 2 Chronicles chapter 25. Boy, I love the story. The Bible stories are so wonderful. All of you have heard of, of a king named Joash. Joash, boy, he came from a rough beginning, but when he was eight years old, Jehoiada, the priest, made him king. His mother, his mother, grandmother, killed all of his brothers and sisters so she could be queen, but they hid Joash, and when he was eight years old, they made him king, and then they had to kill her to get her out of the way. But anyway, Joash was a king, and he did pretty good for a while. Then when Jehoiada died, he wound up not doing so well. He even killed Jehoiada's children. And his children wound up killing him, the ones that left. The son of Joash was Amaziah. Now, is it verse 2 in Amaziah that said that uh, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but, verse 2, but not with a perfect heart? He's like a lot of us, isn't he? Man, we're trying. We want to do right, but we, we're easily distracted. Got a lot of other things on our mind, other things that kind of we want to be all right, though we, you know, I don't know. But Amaziah, the Bible said, let's give him this. Amaziah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. Now, in securing his kingdom, which is what the kings did, they come in to make themselves strong, make their positions strong, surround yourself with men you can trust who will protect you and make sure your army's strong to keep your country strong and keep your citizens strong. They're the ones that are paying the bills. So he hired the army in Israel, 100,000 men from Israel, to help be his army also. 100,000, he gave him 1,000 talents of silver. Now that must have been a lot of money. 1,000 talents of silver. And then the prophet came to him, and somewhere between verse 2 and verse 9, the prophet came to him, and he said, I'm not with them. Verse 7, he says, I'm not on their side. How would you translate that today, and what does that verse mean to us? If all Scripture has application for us today, how does this verse of Scripture have application, or this passage? How many of us turn to things that God doesn't bless? How many of us are finding comfort and peace in things that God has not given us to find comfort and peace in, that He is our peace? How many people turn to the beggarly elements of this world for security, and God doesn't bless those areas? That's not what he's doing. And yet man sometimes doesn't think about what does God want you to do first. He just does things and then goes off. But the prophet came to him, and he said, why are you doing this? I'm not blessing the Israel of the ten tribes of the north. They're not blessed. Look at verse 9, because Amaziah said, I gave him a thousand talents of silver. This is how God would think in you correcting yourself. And Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do for the hundred talents which I have given to the army of Israel? And the man of God answered, That's a lot of money. I don't know what you're going to do. And the man of God turned to Amaziah, and he said, How much you give him? A thousand talents of silver. Oh, no. How much silver we got left in the earth? A thousand talents. Oh, my. How many hours? What's our wages at 
15 bucks an hour. How long is it going to take us to get a thousand? Oh, a thousand talents of silver. What are we going to do? Man, my treasure. <laughs> now, you wouldn't do that. I know you wouldn't. $50, $10, you lost $20. What are we going to do now? Let's get on our knees and discover that God is able to give you much more than a thousand talents of silver. God is able to give you much more. This new job that you got or something pays what less than the other one did. Is God able to make it up some other way? I learned many, many years ago not to fret about money. Travel a long way somewhere, and you get over there. I mean, someplace far away, and when you told them you spoke in tongues, they forgot where the offering bucket was. I had, I've traveled a long way. I spoke one time in London, Kentucky, drove back to Louisville to speak at a big church downtown Louisville. It was fine until I got to that, but that's a part of me. And I drove all the way back to London, and I had enough gas to get back down there. They didn't give me a dime. But I've learned that when you got back down there, somebody was inspired to give more than they normally would there, and what you got there was more than you should have got. But it probably made up for this bunch over here, that God has always made it work. Then the older you get through the years, the more he just makes it work. It just, just works. Jesus said, take no thought. God is able to make all grace abound toward us. That we always, having all sufficiency in all things, we can abound to every good work. We can give. We can help people. We got a bucket back there. We got envelopes in the mail. Whatever. You can give. If you've never done it, try it one time. Just try giving one time. Put a nickel in that jug. And you'll hear it if it doesn't hit that shuffled money in there. Just drop your nickel in there and then say, praise God, I give that to the kingdom. Just help somebody, relieve somebody, deliver somebody, hallelujah. Put a dime in there, it's better. Put a dollar in there. I saw a $50 bill there once. A 50? I did. Nobody stole it. $50 bill. I've seen a $100 bill in there. God remembers all of this. It's recorded. God remembers. But for us, quit making money the focus of your life. God is able to supply all of your needs. Quit talking about your debts and your bills and your money. What am I going to do? Start thinking about what God says and then speak that which edifies, not glorifies the devil. Thirdly, turn to Acts 20. and verse 32, Paul is speaking to the elders at Ephesus and he concludes this with saying with this, and now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able. Now, here's what God is able to do. This is something unique to God. To the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance amongst all them that are sanctified. Now, concerning his word, which we talk about a lot, in Hebrews 1.3, the Bible says, He upholds all things by the power of his word or the word of his power. All things are upheld by the word of his power. In fact, the created order, all things that exist, function by what the word says. As it is recorded, so shall it be, in other words. How many things happen in the Bible and then have this to follow that, that it might be according to Scripture? The world exists because of his word. He spoke a word. The devil flees because of a word. It is written. Jesus said it three times. It is written. He didn't fret about it. I don't have anything to eat and nobody knows who I am. He just simply says, it is written. It is written. It is written because there's power in the word. Saving power again in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. This is the might and the power that God has given to us because this is where faith comes from. He sent his word to do two things. It would prosper 
in the thing he sent it to, whatever it says, that's what he sent it to do, and it will accomplish those, his purposes. You want to know what God is doing? Read the Word. Study the Bible. And then hold it in awe and fear or silence and reverence before God and say, Be it unto me according to thy word. Be it unto Shelbyville Christian Assembly according to this word. Be it in my life as a person, as a human being, as a pastor, as a, as a husband and father according to thy word. May thy word prevail. May I be guilty of being wordy. Somebody said, oh, y'all talk about the word all the time. Oh, God, make it so. Make it so. On my trash can in my room, if you've ever sat there, and if I knew you were coming, I'd try to turn around so he could read it. Now I'm giving away my secret. But the trash can says, while I'm talking to you, what does the word say? What does the word say? What does scripture say about your life this morning? about you as a human being and what you're thinking, what's heaviest on your mind, what does the Word say about it? And the reason you're fretting over it is because you don't believe that. Because if you believe that, you believe who said that. And the one who said that watches over his Word to perform it. It's all about his Word. We can go to the biggest churches and preach all the lofty themes and ideas about making the world a better place, and we can talk about having this movement or that movement and the apostles and the prophets, and we can talk about how to do and We can talk about everything except the Word. And the people get all excited, but it doesn't last. And when darkness comes, it doesn't work. Because the one thing that the devil fears is this Word become an abiding force in your life because you believe it. If he can fight your believing, he can make you eventually turn away from that word and limit God. He can. He does it all the time. He said this word is able to build you up. The word build up is like the pictures building a house. One nail at a time. One nail at a time. I have never seen a house built when you begin to put the walls up, the two-by-fours up, or the two-by-six or whatever they put on the outside walls, I've never seen any builder, never saw a builder do this, never saw him hang that board up and say, beep. All of them had to get down and, well, today they shoot the big gun, don't they? Well, they got them big arms because they shoot that big gun. One at a time. Just like your life, just like us. We're not going to heaven overnight. It's a process. We're growing from glory to glory to glory. We're being saved. Salvation is a process. It takes time. It begins with the new birth. It ends with the resurrection of your body. In the meantime, it's the restoring of the soul, as Psalm 23 talks about. And God is changing your heart and your life and your thinking and your ways and making you the kind of person he wants to be. This is what he's doing. But it's one day at a time. We're not running a 100-yard dash here. We're in a marathon, and it's one day at a time. It has its difficulties, and it has its times where you've got to stop and figure out what you're doing and repent or, or reassert yourself, but it's, this is what God is doing. He is able to start you on a journey that ends with a house built on a rock. He's able. Nobody else can do this. He goes on to say, and give you an inheritance. Give you an inheritance. Who gets the inheritance? Whoever's in the will. If I check out, do you think you all get what I got? My family gets it. Unless I decide to give it to you. But if I gave it to you, did you earn it? Then why did you get it? Are you good enough? Are you good enough to get somebody's inheritance? Then why did you get it? You're not good enough. Because you don't earn it. It was given to you by somebody who owned it and chose to give it to you because they wanted to. It's an inheritance. We're told, be not slothful, but followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Do you know that it's important to God for us to receive what he's given us? That God has given us, what, 8,000 promises? They're for entertainment. They're the basis for songs. 
All these promises that God gives are just for us to stand afar off on Jordan's stormy banks and cast a covetous, wishful eye over in Canaan's fair and happy land where all my possessions lie. That's a lie. As one soul said many years ago, if the cake is across the lake, go over there and get it. How many of you have ever been on a cruise? Oh, good. Several of you. Did you get enough to eat? But anyway, when you're on a cruise and they give you the ticket or you secure a ticket and I guess you walk up the plank and get on the ship and you hand somebody whatever they need to put you on that ship. What all is paid for? Now, Christians live like, oh, thank God, I'm on the ship. Oh, I'm on the ship. Oh, praise God. They smell the food. Oh, whew. And somebody said, well, there's no sense you getting too smelly about that because it don't belong to you. That belongs to somebody else. You can't have that. All God promised you but the ticket was to get on the boat. That's all. Let me ask you something. If you got a ticket to take the cruise, do you get to eat? Then what's that sack lunch you brought for? What's them old potato chips for? Why'd you bring all that old stuff from downtown that ain't fit to eat for? Because nobody told you that when you got on the ship, you get everything that goes with it. It's an inheritance. God said he would give you the desires of your heart. Now, I didn't write this. He said, delight yourself in the Lord. The psalmist did. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Jesus himself said about taking no thought, don't worry about tomorrow. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his right ways, and all these things shall be added to you. Well, they should be. I'm not going to talk about all of that this morning. I'm just going to tell you that God has given you an inheritance. There are things that he's promised in his word that he's given to you and that he's going to keep you and secure you. That's part of the blessing. As Peter wrote, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God unto salvation. You see, your inheritance not only is over yonder, but it's over here also. Be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You not only have something now better than what you had, if you want it. Otherwise, you can ride in the boat and not eat if you want to. Or you can ride in the boat and realize that as a child of God, he's richly given you all things to enjoy. People will talk about you if you do. But he's the one that said it, not me. And through all of this, he is glorified because, let's remember, God is the one who gives us all this. His goal is not how much of this world you can get. His goal is to perfect you and, and bring you to completion so that when you do stand before him on that day, he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You had your house, you had cars, you, had, you took trips, you did gains, but you also gave to the Lord's work. You were honest before the Lord, you served him, and he blessed you richly, but you gave him your heart. You can still find that today if you look for it. Finally, Romans 14 and verse 4. Who are you that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be held up, for God is able to make him stand. Now, I began with this. Let me end with this. Remember this little verse also in Jude about God is able to make you stand? He is able, in Jude 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless in his presence before his throne. Only God can do this. Because you're looking at me, I'm looking at you, and I'm wondering how can this be? Because while we change pretty quickly when we first get saved, you don't see a lot of change in the last 15, 16 years of a man's life. It should. 
Maybe it's not as dramatic as it once was, but it should be. Without spot or any such thing. Didn't he say that would happen? Faultless, without spot, unblameable, without blame. He's going to present us before his throne. You realize, Thomas, he's going to take you when he's done with you? Whoo, he's got some work, doesn't he? But he's going to take you, and he's going to hold you before him and set you there, and he's done all this work, and while you're going like this before him, he'll say, well done, Thomas, come on in. Man, this is made for you because God can do that. Where are you at? Where is God in your life this morning, in your thinking, in all your plans and schemes and designs and worries or fears? Where's God? Let your light so shine before the world. That's God. That others may see your good works and glorify God. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the deeper work that you do in us especially the work of relationship where you draw us into you and begin to open our eyes, as the psalmist said, to behold wondrous things from your word, to be happy about it, to be pleased with it, to find your word as an anchor of our souls, to know in our hearts beyond the shadow of a doubt that we have been called out of darkness and that you're keeping us and you're bringing us somewhere. And on this journey, you're going to bless us. In this last day and in this dark world, when the wickedness is coming to the surface, cause also to come to the surface the holiness of your people. I ask you to begin that here in Jesus' name. Amen.